sound like this. The sound of my voice, either going right into your ears or as it bounces around the inside of your car or home or office beforehand. The disturbance of air by some kind of physical vibration that sets up a pressure wave that then, eventually, is absorbed by your eardrum. But sound is also psychological. We perceive sound. It's interpreted by our brains. It's why some of us hear one thing and others hear another when the source of the sound is the same. Our brains process the inputs and then we hear the results. Hearing is as much a mental as physical act. The one thing we can say about sounds is that they don't occur absent a source. They are evidence of... something. Evidence of pressure waves created by a physical action that were heard, either by human ears or mechanical ones, and then sometimes are recorded. In the case of our research, often at great effort. They can be categorized and analyzed, and we can deduce things about our world based on them. We can argue over interpretations and debate sources, but once recorded, they exist. I'm Brandon Lentz of the North American Whitape Conservancy, and today we present to you the results of several years of effort regarding the collection of sound evidence, sounds recorded in the field by our members, sounds we believe to be made by an undescribed species of primate we call the North American Whitape. Perhaps your interpretation of this evidence will be different than ours. Perhaps you will not hear what we hear, but we present it just the same. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. Welcome to a very special episode of Apes Among Us, the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Joining me tonight is my friend and co-host, Matt Pruitt. Matt, how are you tonight? I'm excellent. How are you doing, Brandon? I'm fantastic. I'm really, really excited to finally get this episode and the sound files that we have out into the universe. I've been wanting to do this episode for a few years, so I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. Me as well. I think this group has captured some very interesting things in the field and especially with the help of some very qualified scientific guidance and professionals as well that hopefully we'll be hearing from in this episode, too. So I think the audience will benefit greatly from not only hearing those sounds, but applying maybe some of those lessons to their own field research. So you have spent quite a bit of time in the field yourself. What are the most memorable sounds and vocalizations that you've heard? I'm always fascinated by the deep, long, sustained moaning howls. You know, I think the most popular or most famous version, recorded version of those types of howls came from Matt Moneymaker in Ohio in 1994. And it's one of the things, you know, I've I've never seen one of these apes for myself, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that there's an animal out there that makes that sound because I've heard that type of moan howl in Georgia in North Carolina, heard in Oklahoma, heard in Washington State, you know, various parts of the country. And it's so consistent, just the same way that barred owls make the same calls, regardless of where they occur on the continent, 
these howls have that same kind of consistency regardless of geography. And so those sounds I find very compelling. You know, they do seem to make sounds that uh, approximate or are similar to other types of sounds, but that deep sustained moaning howl is so unique and so different. There's just nothing else in nature that sounds like that. So it's to me, that's one of the most recognizable. I think also because it's one of the loudest sounds that they make and it carries the furthest, tends to be one of the ones that people hear the most. That's really fascinating to me too, that you have heard it in multiple different states from all across the country. That gives us a little bit of insight into their population counts and where they might be located at the very least. I have actually heard a truncated version of the Ohio howl, and I call it the Oklahoma howl because I heard it in Area X. I was sitting out in front of the cabin one night and it was, I think, 4 a.m., and I heard maybe 100 yards or so in front of me a animal make a disturbance in the dry creek bed. I heard rocks clacking against each other, and then immediately after I heard a rock clack, at the risk of embarrassing myself here, I'm going to do my best impression of the sound that I heard. It went, and then it stopped, and... I have never heard anything like that in my life before or since. So I have to believe that it must have been an ape. Oh, that's amazing. One time I actually heard two individuals make that sound back and forth to each other. And that was in Northeast Georgia, near my hometown of Helen, Georgia, in the upper Chattahoochee River Basin. Every other time I've heard that sound, it's just been a single individual that I could hear. And it was making that sound usually in repetitions of like two to three howls. And then it would stop. And sometimes it wouldn't call again for an hour to an hour and a half. Um, So I'm not quite certain what that means or what that represents, if anything at all. That's interesting. What time of day did you hear those howls at? Almost every time I've heard them, it was at night, quite late at night, usually after midnight. I really wish I could come up with something substantive to correlate and understand why they only make those sounds at night. But I've only heard the one sound that I heard was at night as well. Now, there were some vocalizations that both you and I heard together last year that fortunately were captured on one of the autonomous recording units that you've kind of taken the helm and uh, led the charge on trying to get those analyzed. And I'm sure people would be interested to hear about those particular calls as well. Yes. And what we heard that night was six long howls, and we captured them on one of our ARUs, as you had mentioned, and I sent them around to a few different wildlife biologists, particularly wolf biologists, and they did a spectrogram of the sounds, and the sounds actually came back as in the vocal range of red wolves, and red wolves aren't supposed to exist in Oklahoma. Right now, the only known wild population of red wolves exists in North Carolina, and there are only two dozen of them. So I'm working on getting that released to the public, and hopefully I can finish that up soon. Yeah, that should be highly significant, I think, to anyone who's not only interested in this topic, but just interested in North American wildlife or conservation uh, as well. It reminds me a bit of a story that I read in uh, Bill Bryson's fantastic book, uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything, which is kind of a a narrative about the history of science and scientific discoveries. And there's an anecdote in there about a team of scientists at an academic institution who had first proposed that 
radiation left over from the Big Bang should be detectable in the form of radio waves. And so they had uh, developed numerous listening devices, basically giant antennas, trying to capture that sound to no avail in multiple iterations uh, using what I would assume to be quite a bit of grant money. And meanwhile, colleagues of theirs were doing a separate listening project with antennas, but they couldn't get past this overpowering white noise that they were always receiving. And so they had reached out to the uh, group of academics searching for the Big Bang radiation and said, hey, we understand that you're doing this listening project. Can you help us? We have this static that's a constant nuisance that we can't get rid of. And it turned out that that static was the radio waves being produced by the residual radiation of the Big Bang. And the people who had inadvertently found that actually got the credit for the discovery. To me, that antidote speaks to, well, there have to be field biologists in America right now trying to capture red wolf recordings because they're rare. And there's probably other scientists who are trying to ascertain whether or not red wolves are occur in other areas outside of their current known range. And here we are coming up with this data. And it's not what we're looking for, uh, but it still should be of value to someone. I mean, we basically have highly sensitive electronic ears in the midst of a vast wilderness area listening for the better part of half a year for multiple years now. Of course, we're going to get some things of interest, even if they're not ape-related. And I think hopefully that would generate some interest among qualified scientists who are similarly searching for uh, that kind of bioacoustic data. Right. And that brings up a good point. I always consider the wood ape an umbrella species. So when we're out there researching, looking for and trying to get that wood ape specimen, I don't consider the wood ape specimen to be the end all be all. I consider every single species under the wood ape in that same habitat to be important and protected. And I think that there are other discoveries that are yet to be made throughout the entire country. Oh, certainly. I think audio recording is a big part of how to accomplish that because it's a heck of a lot easier, as you know, to hear something than it is to see it. It requires less effort. You can be stationary with a listening device, and depending on the sensitivity of your microphones, you can hear for a great distance, a huge radius, uh, much more easily than, let's say, if you were to take the operational range of a game camera. Well, how many square feet or, I guess, cubic feet can a game camera really survey? Even though it sees a big picture, that's one part of it, but also, well, how effective is the range of the IR trigger that has to be tripped for the game camera to fire and capture that versus an audio recorder that's running 24 seven, that's always listening, has a much better chance at collecting data about animals that make sounds. And then beyond that, it's, you know, it's a lot easier to send those files around and have people listen to them because you know, you can listen to those things while you're driving or while you're working on other things. The listening through audio doesn't require you to have to be stationary and watching something. A lot of times when I used to record field audio overnight, I would listen back to it while driving or doing other chores, wearing headphones and things like that. And sometimes you have to crank it up pretty loud so you don't miss any subtle sounds. And then every once in a while you might have you know, something like an acorn that falls on your microphone and it sounds like a gunshot went off in your headphones, but it's worth it for when you do find those moments where you, you captured something. So it should be something that anybody who's interested in wildlife, especially in the sciences, should be pursuing. Right. And I think that science, too, is all about sharing data that you find. In the instance of the NAWAC, I 
don't think that we want to be secret squirrel about the data that we have gathered over the past 10, 15 years that we've been operating in Area X. And the Watchtower Project monograph is a good instance of that. So I can only hope that if there are folks out there that are listening and want to share some of the audio files that they've gathered, you can share it with us. We have a contact link at our webpage at woodape.org. If you want to send us anything that you found, please do. We'd love to hear it. I think one of the benefits of releasing audio that we have, clearly certain sounds that we've recorded are consistent with what witnesses have purported to have heard in the field and often have purported to have seen the apes make the sounds. But I think certainly there are some sounds that we find questionable that are clearly made by a living animal but are difficult to pinpoint. And you know, we would love the feedback, I'm sure, of any qualified scientist who can weigh in on some of those and, and bring some clarity to that. Because, you know, regardless of one group's effort in one valley, you know, the idea of releasing information to the public is to make it a collective effort and to get everyone involved. And I think I know that you'll speak with Dr. Angelo Caparella for a great deal of this episode. And I think his approach speaks to that need of a group effort. I mean, we're talking about massive amounts of data, days and days, literally months worth of audio to be poured through, not listened to in its entirety in real time. You know, you're separating out sounds with software that are identifying certain sounds, but it's a Herculean effort and it takes a group effort. And that extends beyond just this group, which is, I think, part of why the NAWAC releases information to the general public is to get the opinion of other individuals outside of there. And that's certainly welcomed. Well, you had mentioned sharing information, and you were with a group of investigators in Area X last year who shared some information and experiences and actually recorded that conversation. So I would like to now bring you the conversation featuring you, Daryl Collier, Joel Thomas, and Ken Helmer. coffee shop roundtable, except we're not exactly in a coffee shop. Uh, I've got three gentlemen with me. We're sitting here at the fire circle out in the middle of the Washita wilderness. And who do I have to my left here? Uh, my name is Kenneth Helmer. I'm coming from Montgomery, Texas. I'm Matt Pruitt. Uh, I am here from Nashville, Tennessee. And my name is Joel Thomas. I come from Poto, Oklahoma, and I'm the newbie of the group. And I'm Daryl Collier. Uh, and I've been coming here since 2004, uh, seen and heard a lot of things in here. So this episode deals with um, sounds, um, audio, things that we've heard and recorded here in Area X over the years. Um, and I'll tell you, we've, we've recorded some weird stuff. Um, we put out automated or autonomous recording units that um, collected audio for us around uh, the clock, 24-7, definitely paid off for us. We got some cool some cool recordings. Matt, what did we get? What are some of the things we got um, on those recordings? Well, so far, there have been a number of incredible recordings uh, that cannot be easily attributed to known North American wildlife. And I think we're fortunate enough to have uh, the kind of qualified ears listening through this. Uh, we have a Dr. Angelo Caparella right. who... Awesome. Uh, has been very generous to donate his time and energy and even the recorders themselves that are actually uh, originally used for 
long duration studies of, uh, I guess, birds in particular in certain areas. And uh, he has single-handedly identified and, I guess you could say, discovered multiple bird species himself. So he's quite adept at identifying bird calls and therefore ruling out uh, known animals and known birds. So that's, I guess, what you could say we're the most interested in are the sounds that cannot easily be attributed to known North American mammals or birds. Yeah, and what's cool about it is he actually has his undergrad and graduate students working on it for us. You know, they, they, we collect these uh, these recordings and then uh, Angelo takes them, we, we send them to Angelo, and then he has his students just uh, just pour through the audio files and uh, yeah, identify these recordings. I know last year we got some awesome recordings of, uh, I mean, to me, those recordings sound like, um, they just sound like gibbons on steroids, whoops, these really high-pitched whoops and uh, uh, just sound incredible. Who? who who uh, out here has heard those whoop, those recordings that we had from last year? Just me? No, I've heard them. Yeah. I've definitely heard them. So what do y'all think about those? Sawbones, Ken, what do you think? Well, I mean, they don't sound like any other animal I can think of other than wood apes. I mean, we've heard these type of whoops out here for right. quite a long time. I'm quite like you. I've been coming out here since, what, 2006 or so? Mm -hmm. No six, yeah. And I've heard whoops and howls and screams and all sorts of crazy stuff um but having those audio recorders out there 24 7 really makes a big difference in the past in fact what's that's what we did this week right ken we put out two we put out the the aru's for this year right um and so they're going right now 24 7 yeah um well in the past you know the way we did it is kind of all we had some Marantz recorders and we would put them out Tascams. yeah, yeah the Tascams, not Marantz, the Tascams, and we put those out at nighttime and you know most of the time we'd sleep through the night and it was kind of our ears through the through the evening to see what happened and then you know come morning time you download the files and then once you're out, out of the field you have to actually sit down and listen to all those and it's really tedious um i'm glad that angelo's got some graduate students that one of my questions was going to be how do they actually find the sounds within the They're files using the kaleidoscope uh, software sure and I, i'm not really familiar with that software but that's that's what that's what they're using to uh, to sort through it part of the problem with doing the audio thing is one you can't really see what's making the sounds. Oh, yeah sure of course you have to extrapolate by things that happen but i was asking about the graduate students you know sometimes you can put on a spectrogram and look for spikes and oh yeah signals, right. but over the years of listening i found that if I would get a spike like a rock throw, I would listen for five or ten minutes before, and that's when yeah. I started picking up things like these, right. these huffs and groans and, mm -hmm. and other other noises. They can be really hidden within the ambient background sound of the insects and all that. So it can be very difficult. In fact, I got to the point where I would just listen to all, you know, ten hours of audio recording. Yeah, the whole thing. And I would yeah. just run it at fast speed while I was doing some other work. Yeah, and then I started finding things. Um, that we hadn't heard before, you know, footfalls or mm -hmm. huffs or growls or whatever it was. But you're talking about those Tascams recording some great stuff, you know, back in years past. I remember one night, Ken, when you and I were on a team uh, in, I think, 2012, and that's the first time that I heard the huff sounds, and it was yeah. like right outside the window. I mean, I was sleeping in the cabin in this one room, and there's this little uh, window that you can roll has a little winding thing on the old handle that you wind and it rolls the window out and right outside that window i hear like footfalls and then a 
and this rock just rolls across the porch and then i hear the thing running off and we got a great recording of that yeah because of those uh those those task cam recorders matt you you said something the other day uh, which i think it was yesterday you and i were talking about those huffs and you were sort of giving me your your hypothesis of of of, of why they were producing those huff sounds like like just right before they throw a rock because it seems like that seems to be the, the common thread is or oftentimes before right before they'll if they're cl really close range and you can hear the animal and they throw a rock right before they throw that rock you'll hear a or a and you said something about that yesterday what what were you what were your thoughts on that do you remember well there are certain mammals that vocalize uh and those vocalizations are tied into their limbic system so it's actually almost like an emotional response it's oh, yeah, you right, could almost right. yeah. you could almost interpret it as like an involuntary behavior mm -hmm. that happens when their stress level or heart rate or something is occurring that uh, makes them agitated or they're reacting to mm -hmm. um so I know that chimpanzees, certain vocalizations that chimps exhibit, for example, are tied into their lip, limbic system. So it's not something that they are uh, necessarily in control over as they become agitated. You know, they get more and more uh, essentially worked up and start to produce these sounds as an involuntary reaction. And so in some of the context that you hear these huff recordings that you guys were able to procure uh, over the years, it seems like it, they're occurring it'd be easy to interpret that they're occurring in that same context. Mm -hmm. And especially with these ARUs too, I think one of the things anybody listening to this will really benefit from is that in terms of a work versus gain equation, this is the greatest payoff that you can have. And I did the same thing for years uh, with much, much shorter duration things because if you're trying to survey an area, let's say that if you're a researcher and you're interested in looking into your own locations or places that you're interested in trying to figure out whether or not these things, you know, these wood apes are in that area, it can be extremely difficult to walk that land physically and lay eyes on anywhere that you might find sign or spore right. or even more difficult to see the thing there. But, you know, you don't have to be very close to something to hear it. And with something like an audio recorder that has, you know, a fairly sensitive microphone that you can get, you know, a consumer grade recording, leave it out overnight, depending on the battery life and the size of the SD card, you can survey a very large area for multiple nights without even having to be there. Mm. You plant the recorder, let it run until the card is full or the batteries yeah, are dead, right. and then go home and, and listen back through that. And if you, you know, are... Uh, tedious enough to say because I like Ken mentioned I would listen through all the hours of that audio because I yeah. didn't want to miss anything right. and if you just kind of train yourself enough to be able to readily identify known animal sounds like the the usual suspects coyotes barred owls etc you can really effectively survey a big area very quickly to determine whether or not there are apes in that area so yeah, cool it's a fantastic thing that this group is doing for a very long duration but you know I know a lot of what uh, drew me to this particular organization is that they are very interested in educating the public and also encouraging other researchers. So mm -hmm. I think it's fantastic, and it is the kind of thing that more researchers should be doing to survey locations. So yeah. Daryl, yeah. these ARUs, how many gigabyte card do you have in them, and how long does it record for before you have to do a battery change? Dude, it's two 512 gigabyte cards in each yeah. unit. So. And, and we've got two, we've got a 12 volt battery hooked up to each one. So we're going to get 130 days of, 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 of continuous recording 24 seven. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have to change the battery. We don't even have to change. We don't have to pull the cards for the entire duration of the operation, which is going to be roughly 130 days. 
So, <laughs> I mean, that's that's fantastic, you know. It's going to record everything within earshot of those microphones. And it's a, they're really nice units. They're, uh, I think it's Wildlife Design SM4s. Um, come, they come highly recommended just for this this particular line of work. They're, they're, they're designed for this, you know. So on the first day, I mean, that's what we did, Joel, right? We we took those those SM4s out, and what we do? Just tell them a little bit about what we did, how we deployed those things. Well, we went to uh, particular areas that were um, predetermined, and we hiked in, hiked up and uh, carried ladders in. And, yeah, that's and right. We, and we just packed all the gear in and mm -hmm. put them up in some trees. We fastened them and put wood screws in there to secure them to the trees trees yeah and and uh we were putting one up aru one up and then I, I look at pruitt and he's got this this look of excitement on his face and he's like and i and at that time i had the the bionic ears the, the headphones on and uh, i kept hearing this sound to me it sounded like a cicada and pruitt pruitt's like snake 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 and it's like right down at my feet i turned around and there's a uh uh, a timber rattler right behind me I mean, with like within a foot and a half of me and just very large ready <laughs> yeah, to strike. it was huge it was right there and uh, he was ready to strike man so we definitely had some excitement with that um Pruitt, how many snakes have you seen in the last six days uh, yeah since we've been here we saw <laughs> saw that rattlesnake that was coiled and ready to strike uh, so that was, you know, a nice introduction to the valley for the year. And then uh, several days later, we had spread out across the main creek uh, that is the, you know, the primary water source in this valley. And Daryl and I were hunting on a spot and kind of on the bank of the creek. And I'm looking downstream a bit. And I kept hearing Pruitt like, I, I could barely make out. I couldn't really understand what he was saying. He yeah, was we, like, Daryl. Yeah, we basically had our backs yeah, to I each other. I could tell he was excited about something. We, we essentially had our backs to each other. I'm looking downstream and he's looking upstream. And, Darryl, uh, I, I, you know, we're obviously trying to be quiet. We're, we're camoed up and, and trying to be very still. And so I see in a very short period of time what I'm certain are three water moccasins, three different individuals. And at various points, they looked like they were gonna come up onto the bank, essentially at my feet. And so I had a rock ready to chuck at them to you know, deter them, but I wanted to let Daryl know. He stood up and he gave his best Arnold impression. I you said, know, get I out of here, snake. <laughs> come on, go, get out of here now. <laughs> ah, come on, do it, kill me now. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't want to throw this rock in the water and just alarm Daryl. You know, so I was trying to let him know, hey, I'm, I'm going to chuck this rock. And he couldn't quite hear me. So finally, I turned to look at him to tell him what I was going to do. And upstream of him is one of the largest water moccasins I've ever seen. <laughs> so I'm yelling at him, pointing, look at that, look at that. And upstream from it, 10 feet, is a second one that's nearly yeah, the same yeah, size. Yeah, coming through the little waterfall. So we're like, man, we got to get out of this spot. So <laughs> I that was, tell he was a little excited. I was like, so okay, let's, let's push off. That brought me up to six snakes <laughs> for the week. I'm starting to go around a very large tree, and I just look up, and there's this huge snake tail wrapped around the tree. <laughs> we come around the other side. It's a big black rat snake about six feet long on the tree. And so that made... Uh, number seven of the trip and then yesterday Joel and I hiking in a dry creek bed Joel almost stepped on another snake so that made eight so back to our soundscape X um, some of the sounds we've heard here uh, Matt what did we hear last year uh, we were out here uh, on a team Spartan in October and you and I heard some pretty interesting vocalizations absolutely I mean there's if there's one sound that I've heard consistently all over the country that's attributed to these things that I, you know, I know it happens because I've heard it in the field in multiple places is the long moaning sustained howl that kind of 
ascends in pitch to a certain note and then it descends. And we call that the Absolutely. Ohio howl. Yeah, most, it was first recorded in the field in 1994 by Matt Moneymaker in Ohio. And so that was the first recorded example of that kind of vocalization. It's been recorded multiple times around the country since then. But, you know, it's colloquially referred to as the Ohio howl because that was almost the holotype of, the, right, of that yeah. sound, you know. Yeah. So last year we were here. And we hear that um, all the time out here. Oh, absolutely. And I was fortunate enough last October here with you, you know, because that's usually the sound that I'll make in yeah, the right. field, you know, right. that I emulate that sound. And if I'm lucky, I get that sound in response, you know, yeah. if there are apes, resonant apes within earshot that feel like responding. And last year we heard beautiful, very loud, uh, very almost had a, a kind of a menacing quality because there's a bit of a, a almost a growl tone that's like, but and they were off was, to the north northeast. Well, it was from so loud, the you command know, man post here, right? We that, were sitting in a crackling fire with our ears close to the fire. Yeah, I mean, right. sitting right at it, and we could hear these vocalizations loud enough to be yeah. heard over the fire. It was very impressive, mm -hmm. you know. And then we've heard a few of those this trip, this time, right? They've been pretty distant, uh, not real close, but. Um, We've heard some Ohio howls on, on this particular team. We heard a set of five last so, night. Tell us about that. So, Matt, well, before we do that, what if someone's listening to this and they don't know what the Ohio howl is? Well, it, do it, it for us. Again, it's essentially a long, sustained moaning howl that ascends in pitch and then descends. And I won't do it at full volume. <laughs> I won't do it at full volume for, for the benefit or of in the listener. field. Maybe but it's, something it's, will get it's a very, It's almost very similar to an air raid siren. Well, it's Matt, kind why of like don't you a, like, walk over there and do yeah. it over there at distance? All right, this should be good. So Matt, I, I'm gonna have you. I'm gonna have you just sort of do like one Ohio howl, at least your version of it. Um, and this is, I mean, this is often what we do out here. And and there are times we will actually get a response. Sometimes it's not immediate. Sometimes it's 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 you know there's some amount of time between when we make the call and when and when we get the response. Um, of course, we'll have to note this in the journal because we've got these ARUs. The closest ARU is about 150, maybe 200 yards from camp. It'll definitely pick up, Matt. So go ahead, Matt. Send it. Got so, the frogs going again. Yeah. Thought I heard some barred owls out there too. Yeah. yeah. Carried very well. And we did that a couple nights ago and we heard a response. Mm -hmm. Didn't we? Yeah. Was that two nights ago? Yeah. Right. And then last night at about three in the morning, two forty five AM, we heard uh six owls just like that. A little bit higher pitch, more of a wail off in the distance. That direction again, right? Yep, to our north. Uh -huh. And uh, just, you know, not in response to us. We hadn't done any howls. So this is just a random ape out there decided to want to howl at mm -hmm. 2.45 in the morning. The, the most blatant one that I've heard it was not here in Area X. I mean, it was like 40, 50 yards away from me down in the Sam Houston National Forest. There's no way it could be any other animal. It was just incredible. Uh, you know, I, I played played the, a recording of the Ohio howl, and it's like... 
within 10 seconds after the last howl, this thing just like it was like 40 or 50 yards off in the woods and just six howls just ah! there's like this nasty gnarly growl at the end of each one it's like kind of what Pruitt just did but it had this growl and then there are times that would just sort of like it's sort of crack and go up into an like an octave above I mean I can't right. really describe it uh, it's hard to describe but then after it finished the sixth howl you hear this 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 humongous tree limb just start cracking and then just and it just explodes like like this thing just reached up and grabbed a tree limb and and just broke it off the tree what year is that that was 05 2005 how many people had a recording of the ohio hall in 2005 oh yeah there weren't very many at that time i mean not everybody seems to have it that really started uh i don't think that really got disseminated until much later yeah a lot of people started getting their hands on it but um so, I mean, there have been other things we've heard here as well in Area X. So we've heard the whoops. We've talked about the whoops. We've we've heard these Ohio, these howls that we, um, to which we refer as the Ohio howl. We've heard pant hoots. You know, Les Stroud talks about that. Is anybody here familiar with Les Stroud's account? Yeah, absolutely. Matt, why don't you tell Les, Les Stroud's account that remember in Alaska and he heard the pant hoot. Absolutely, yeah. Les had, had kind of... Uh... Wait, shh. That sounded like a bark or something to it me. Did. It sounded like a bark. Let's see if it does it again. Let's keep going. Um, so we've, we've, you know, we've heard these howls to which we refer as Ohio howls. We've talked a little bit about that. We've heard these whoops, and of course, we, we've 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 talked about the whoops and how we've all heard the whoops in here, and um, we've also heard what we call pant hoots. And I know Les Stroud says he heard something like that. Uh, Matt, you have a little knowledge about Les Stroud's account, or? Um, he, he heard some sort of pant hoot or something? Absolutely. I, I think a lot of people in this research field, too, kind of felt like that was uh, somewhat of a validating victory to have somebody of Les Stroud's character and credibility and reputation. Uh, it, he'd never really spoken publicly about the subject before, and, and he was asked on a radio show whether or not he believed that Sasquatches were real, you know, extant animals. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I had an experience where I heard something that sounded like a big ape outside of my tent, yeah. you know, basically describing the classic ape pant hoot Didn't sound. Didn't snap a branch too or something? He heard brush movement, as I recall, and, and he heard this kind of, oh, yeah. oh, you know, very ape-like right. sounds. Yeah. And so, you know, I, th I think for myself and a lot of us who, you know, are constantly um, hoping that more and more people will not only be open-minded but kind of open-lipped about speaking about their own experiences that was a big score to hear him talk about that and uh, i think it's fascinating that what he described on a totally different region of this continent you know where where he experienced that is very similar to what you guys have not only heard but recorded here yourselves well alton higgins and i heard a pant hoot like that i want to say it was 2013 and we were sitting out just like we are right now, and behind us up on the mountain, we just hear this 
And it went on for like a minute and a half. Just this constant, just and it wasn't really loud. It was about like that, but it was very, you know, you can hear how quiet it is out here. It was it was like that. And we just sat there and listened to it. And it was, it was really kind of freaky, man. And it went on for like a minute and a half and then it just stopped. And then that was it, you know? Um, and, you know, Brian Brown and uh, Brad McAndrews and I heard something that's similar to a pant hoot in 2011 August of 2011 um, we were cutting some trees we were, we were clearing a path because the main road had these huge down trees across and we had to cut through these saplings so that we could drive around it and uh, we, we didn't have the chainsaw with us we just had a bone saw so we were having to manually cut our way through these saplings and I got in the truck and, and uh, was just I was driving through this cut area that we had just cut and Brian and, and uh, McAndrews are standing out there, uh, you know, kind of directing me. And I look at Brian, he's got this frantic look on his face, and he's like doing his feet, his hands across his neck, like, cut it, you know, kill it, kill the engine, kill the engine. And I kill the engine, and and that's, and, and I just get out of my truck, and that's when I hear this sound, um, and it sounded close, like, you know, 30, 40 yards away, and it's just like, reverberating through the whole valley it was like really loud it's just a <laughs> and it goes on for like 15 20 seconds and it just you know uh and then at the end we hear these cowdies like whimpering um and we yeah, chuck will's widow out there can hear it and we went you know we tried to walk after it go after it and, and investigate it but it, we never heard it again but that was man that was a really creepy thing to hear it was very loud, and it was a very big sound. I mean, it sounded like a huge animal, and I don't do it justice at all. Um, but it just, it, you know, it just you could hear its reverberations through the valley. Do you think it was mimicking the... Well, that's kind of what I suggested, but Brian and, and Brad, they disagreed with that. They, they you know, they didn't, they didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, uh, but uh, to me, I was wondering that. I wondered if it was kind of mimicking that saw, because um, we've had them, you know, mimic things out here before yeah. so that was like kind of like the first thing that popped into my mind because the saw had a sound sort of like that you know <laughs> as you're cutting those trees and that's kind of what this thing sounded like except it was huge i mean it's just a really loud uh creepy sound you know well again as uh, you know entirely speculation uh which is important to note but speculation is obviously an important part of any scientific process to hypothesize and right. kind of do thought experiments and different things mm -hmm. but you know, it could be potentially that it was not mimicking that sound, but that that sound was similar enough to a natural sound that they make. That's that a great if point. it heard that sound at a distance, it might have thought it was another one of its own kind producing that sound and responded with its own sound. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah, that's a good point. Which, again, you know, field researchers and NAWC members have experienced varying degrees of that where we make the sounds that they make and they respond almost as if especially at a distance that they hear us and they just assume you know that it's another one of their kind which is something that quote unquote you know bigfoot researchers have been doing for a long time and you know kind of feeds in a little bit to this concept and this idea of like well how many are there how rare are they um, because if they are you know rare with large territories and widespread it might be extremely important to their survival that they respond to and oh, approach yeah. those sounds <clears throat> it might be extremely difficult for them to find 
mates in certain kind of environments mm -hmm. or terrain. And so it might be a biological imperative that when they hear a sound, that's something that they produce, that they respond and or, you know, approach and try to observe and, and ascertain whether or not that's one of their own kind. So it's that's the way the species. something that seems to have worked to the NAWAC's advantage here for a very long time. There are some other sounds here that um, we don't think are made vocally. I, you know, I guess that's open to debate uh, because I have heard uh, some people suggest that wood knocks could be produced, you know, by cupping their hands. Uh, the, the, the animals cup their hands over their mouths and do a, a clapping sound or they, produce, they could maybe produce it with a, with a popping of jaws or an air sac. You know, like the ones that Joel, that you and Matt heard today. I mean, that sounded like some dude out there with a 55-inch baseball bat whacking on a tree, right? Absolutely. So, and that's what I've heard in here a number of times. Um, you know, just it, it sounds like Paul Bunyan out there with a with a big honking baseball bat knocking on a tree. Um, I don't know what else that could be, you know, other than what we what we call a wood knock. Yeah, it sounds clearly like tree hard tree like a hardwood or a pine mm -hmm. getting smacked with a with another piece of wood yeah right now the thing about it is you know we used to not be certain or at least a lot of some people were not certain whether these things produce that of course we've now heard it hundreds of times hundreds literally hundreds <clears throat> you know the first time i ever really heard it you were there daryl yeah it was the middle of the night outside the cabin i'd woken up because the spider ran across my bare chest yeah and, uh, oh yeah, you were on the opposite side of the cabin. You could hear it through the window. Yeah, and I kept hearing like about every. Like something's knocking out there. Something's like. Knocking. I knew it was in the distance, but yeah. it sounded just like. And then you something. said like something was knocking back to. That's it. right. Is well for, I heard it twenty or thirty times, mm -hmm. and it was, I was counting it down, and it was about every. I think it was like every fifteen seconds or something, and I'd hear this thunk, and then there'd be a pause, and then the same thing thunk. And this kept going on from like I, a different direction or is this no a... from the same spot uh -huh. and it kept going on and everybody's asleep and i kind of called attention but that was back when nobody really thought well, these things did that six man yeah that was you know so i kept listening to it and i'd heard about them and then there was a thunk and then from a different direction i heard back thunk and then these two started whacking to each other and i could physically hear them come closer and then like when they were on the same position, then it stopped. Almost like they were locating each other. That's incredible, man. And you know, we know when people will come into the camp or leave camp, that we've heard them knock almost like they're- Yeah, as people leave or people come they're, in. They're responding that yeah. there's a person there. Yeah, I remember last year, Team Romeo, uh, Brian Brown, right, right after he left, I was the last one here. I was wrapping up that morning. I was gonna close up camp. It was the last team. Uh, Brian, Brian, Brian Brown leaves and you know, 30 seconds later there's a knock now how they make the sound though i don't know because we have that that one time remember we found the fire log that yeah. was taken off the porch so what do they do carry carry logs around well, i don't know but this was heck? this was somewhere down the road a little bit about 50 yards away and there was a spot on the tree where it'd been right. the tree had been hit and the log was laying there but we've also had times where we've walked out of the cabin you know early in the morning and someone just goes over and grabs a log or a bat mm -hmm. 
hits the tree a couple times and then immediately will get responses yeah, from exactly. several directions. Yeah, yeah. And by immediately, like within seconds. Right. Totally. <clears throat> so how do they do that? A number of times. I don't know, man. Unless they're carrying something because all right. the deadfall, if you hit a tree, it just falls apart. Right. Well, and but I've heard deadfall. What I thought were deadfall wood knocks. Yeah. Where, where it's like you hear this this nasty sort of wet mm -hmm. impact and then you can just hear the thing explode. No. It's, it's like it's like someone had a wet log and they hit a tree and the wet log just explodes. I've heard that a number of times. Now, at other times, we've heard limbs break before they do it. Right. Oh, yeah. That, I, I heard yeah. one time this really loud limb snap up on the mountain, up on the mountain behind us. I was in Overwatch with uh, with Mark Porter and we heard this really loud limb break and then we heard eight massive wood knocks right after that. So it's like it broke off this limb and then just, you know, just commenced to whacking on this tree. Yeah eight consecutive times is incredible so when i always bring this story up is when i first got into this i went to the same place you heard that ohio how really close yeah right in uh sam he's big creek scenic area yeah. yeah and this place is you know pretty remote and yeah. nobody's there and i went with a, a buddy of mine kind of on a whim i got a new call blaster i said let's drive out there let's go call and see what happens but basically i wanted to reproduce what happened to you mm -hmm. and we pulled into this little parking area and there's nothing there yeah it's just pitch, a little gravel parking pitch bad. black yeah there's like a fog with about a 200 foot ceiling and it was so dark and uh so anyways i played the ohio how mm -hmm. and literally about a minute 30 seconds later 20 30 yards on my right i heard a wood knock <laughs> and i thought holy crap and then right after that like 10 seconds afterwards on my left I heard what we call a rock clack. Yeah, yeah, two which rocks. Which segue into next time. Two rocks being hit together. Yeah, like two rocks being hit together, yeah. which we've heard out here. Many times, yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, we just pulled up right in between two. Uh-huh. Well, let me say, you know, long story short, but later on, I, you know, the week or so later, I went back there during the day because I was perplexed. How could they do that so fast? Right. How did he find a piece of wood? Yeah. And when I looked around, there, you know, everything was just rotten. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was there were no rocks in that area. Yeah. So I don't know how he makes the rock clack huh. sound. So, you know, do they do it by smacking their palm or their foot? You know, chimpanzees will drum with their foot. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Drumming, um, yeah. So I don't know. And, you know, until we see one do it, I guess we'll never know. But they do do it. Yeah. What do you think We about know that. that. What are your thoughts on wood knocking? What do you what, think? Well, you know, it's been attributed to Sasquatches and, and, you know, the North American mystery hominoid for a very long time. Uh -huh. I've heard it myself many places in the country. Didn't the Native Americans, used, they used to hear it as well, right? It, it, it factors into certain folklore, this yeah. idea that they drum on trees or that they yeah. make these sounds. The times that I've heard it, which again, you know, many places in the, in, around the continent were always in the same context. And yeah. the, the speculation that I've had for a very long time, I mean, sometimes it occurs in a way that would lend you to believe that it is intended to be intimidating to human intruders. Oh, like right. Very yeah. loud power knocks, almost like a display of strength yeah, right. via volume. The times that I've heard it that I found to be the most compelling, it seemed to me like they, the, there was, you know, at least two individuals and that they were announcing their location to each other in a way that was, you know, decidedly non-vocal. Yeah. Which in a way falls under an animal behavior called crypsis. Yeah, right. Which right. is almost like camouflaging. Yeah. And one of the most striking times that this had happened to me, it had happened to me multiple times 
and I had taken a friend into the field in Washington in a little uh, subset of the Cascades called the Cultus Mountains at a place called Monkey Hill, actually. <laughs> and there's a, a small open meadow bordered on one side by a stream with very steep, heavily forested slopes on either side. And it seemed to me like the kind of place that they might anticipate prey moving through, you know, ambushing prey as they're, you know, purported to do. And so we'd put ourselves in this position and on either side of us, after some time, you know, I'd done some calls and made some sounds myself trying to elicit a response or an, or an approach. And we heard knocks from either side of this wood line. We're out in the open. And I told my, my friend was just blown away by this. And I said, well, you know, I, I think that that is intended to let, they, they can both see us, mm -hmm. but they can't see each other. Yeah, right. And they need to know where each other are in yeah. order to coordinate any kind of, you know, whether it's a watch or an ambush or whatever they're trying to do. So I said, you know, let me, let, me, let me demonstrate this to you. So we moved to the other end of this meadow and we could hear light movement in the brush, you know, on either side of the slope. And when they got in place, they knocked back and forth to each other again, mm -hmm. very loudly. We did this back and forth in this meadow all night and it kept happening. And the interesting thing was my friend had his dog with him. And whenever there'd be movement in the brush, the dog would growl and it kind of become alert. When the knocks would happen, it didn't even ping on the dog's radar. Hmm. And so I think that that's a behavior that they might have developed in order whether they're surrounding prey or it could form. It's like, it's like they're Morse code, like they're prisoners of war using the Morse code to communicate. Well, I think, it, you know, I think it's probably something that evolved in the context of being able to coordinate an ambush on prey. And yeah. it just also happens to apply to the occasional human intruders yeah. uh, because it's a way that they, you know, if they vocalized all the time to say, I'm over here, you yeah. know, Marco Polo kind of a thing, obviously it scare off everything that they're yeah. trying to pursue or right. to observe. But right. if they make these subtle percussive sounds, as you've seen, I mean, I'd love for you to tell the story um, about, you know, what happens when, when people aren't, you know hip to this information yeah, right they yeah. just hear knocks and they have no idea because why would you think an animal would be responsible well, to that you know, it but, doesn't even necessarily alarm people that's exactly well, like, what well, like alton higgins tells the story of yes. how he came out here with uh with with two uh, uh fellow prof uh, college professors and uh they're biologists yeah yeah well well not no they weren't by he was the biologist and i oh. think the other was one was a historian and i can't remember mathematician i think the third one was a a math professor but so they were, they were sitting around the campfire and they you know they heard what what alton knew to be wood knocks and uh he said one one of the one of the one of the math the math professor i i, I think he was a math professor i can't really remember but, but he looked up at alton and he kind of had a quizzical look on his face and he said fireworks yeah. <laughs> and then the third guy yeah the third guy was reading a book with a flashlight he didn't even didn't even didn't get any response from him didn't even look up didn't even acknowledge the sounds or anything. And Higgins is just like, you know, internally shaking his head like, oh, brother. And that's the, <laughs> the beautiful thing about that strategy is those percussive sounds or percussive events, you know, however they're making that, it just does not betray uh, the fact that an animal is producing it. So, yeah. again, to, to prey animals or to, to human most people, it does not betray their presence. Absolutely. To, because most people don't think they exist to begin with. And so it's not going to register like the dude reading his book. He, he, these things are just fantasy to him. So, he, of course, it's not going to register to him. He doesn't even realize they're real. So, it's crazy. But yeah, it's a, it's a, and and we talked a little bit about it in the monograph about how you know gorillas, mountain gorillas, and and chimps. You know, the, the drumming done by chimps, and then the chest thumping done by gorillas. Uh, it can be heard from like a quarter of a mile away. So it's a, a form of long distance communication. Well, uh, and also, you know, one of the things is. You know, I've been in the woods 
most of my life. You two have Daryl. Um, and, you know, where I live now, there's a lot of woods around. And where I was living a few years ago for six years, you know, I get in the woods and I never hear a wood knock. Right. Yeah. Never thought there were wood apes yeah. in those areas. I just don't hear them. Right. But when I go to places where there's been yeah. history of, of wood apes, yeah. then that's where I hear these things. Yeah, and it's so weird, huh? Strange coincidence. And yeah. well, too, for, for anybody, again, for the listener who, who might be curious or, or quizzical about this, I mean, try it for yourself. Go to these places, spend enough time generating those sounds yourself. Now, obviously, you probably won't get that great of a response if you pull your car off on the side of a main road with your headlights still on and stand next to it and do it. But, you know, if, if you get into an area quietly and you listen for a while and you're not hearing those sounds, try producing those yourselves and you'll find that given enough time in the right places, you will get responses and they will come closer and you'll you'll see, for, you know, this is not just something that is naturally occurring out and, there in the and, woods and all prepared, the time. It, it can get a little creepy if you're not prepared, you know. Well, and that, well, I was just going to say, you don't have to go out there at night and freak yourself out, which is what I think a lot of people do. But oh, we hear them. Uh, we hear them. Um, oh, certainly. Well, what time did what, time Joel and, and Matt? What time did you hear today? What time? No, it was late afternoon. Five. Five, five o'clock. Five o'clock. Sun was like up here. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. That's what everybody thinks. Everybody or a lot of people think these things are like, quote unquote, nocturnal. But I'm telling you, we've had more visual encounters during the daytime. We've had just as many wood knocking sounds during the daytime. I mean, at least here. These animals are every bit as uh, they're every bit uh, as much diurnal as they are nocturnal. I think it's just a mix. So, well, and that's to your point that you know it doesn't have to be just at nighttime. Oh, certainly. You know, I I illustrate that point just to say, well, it'd be easy for someone to go out and uh, you know put up roadblocks for themselves. You know, would knock themselves in a situation that they probably wouldn't get responses to. So you know, put a little work into it and try to basically. Uh, be as as stealthy as you can about getting into these places and generating those knocks. You will increase your odds of getting yeah, a response. Right. Uh, you know, if they know that it's not, or if they think, if they're deceived into believing that it's not a human generating those. Yeah. In, yeah. In many so, cases. Speaking of stealth, let's go to some, you know, sounds that probably aren't so obvious. And a lot of people don't really <laughs> talk about it. It's the mouth pop. Yeah. Thing. The mouth, mouth pops, pops clicks, click, whatever. It's like a clucks. Yeah, I mean that's those are some whistles. of the names we've given to them. Yeah, the we've heard all those out there. It's like it can vary. It can be like this. I mean, literally, it sounds like that. Yeah. Or it can be like. That's another sound that we hear out here. Yeah. There have been times where we've actually exchanged those sounds with some some unseen producer of those sounds just inside a woodline, uh, back and forth, like. Uh, over minutes at times. Alton Higgins last year is the best, ex the most recent best example of that. Um, Higgins was hiking east or west of camp here and he heard these click sounds that went on for about uh, a minute, minute and a half and he clicked back and it would answer and uh, the response, you know, just respond and he would do it again and then finally it stopped. But that's happened a number of times. Uh, so what do you, what do the whistles sound like? Well, Travis Lawrence and I had, um, we exchanged whistles with one that, that followed us one time in uh, uh, February of 2013, we were here and we were hiking east of uh, camp and we heard this and then we whistled back. And we would move a little farther down the trail and then we would hear it again. 
And we would whistle back and it would whistle again. And we would move farther down the trail. And this continued for like a mile down this trail, this thing following us and whistling. And we would whistle to it and it would whistle to us. And finally we decided to turn, take a hard turn up the mountain. And it followed us up the mountain. Uh, again, with the whistles, you know, re responding back and forth. Uh, we finally lost it when we got to the top of the mountain. It stopped responding. Uh, and we circled all the way back around to camp. And uh, that's when we heard the faux speech, which is another sound we've heard out here, um, which we can talk about here in a second. But that's, that's the clearest thing that I've heard. And we have a recording of one whistle before it throws the rock. It huffs and throws the rock. We have that recording mm -hmm. uh, in our database. But... Um, I yeah, mean, that's that's how I've heard the whistles, kind of like how you do them. It's just like a single tone. Yeah. And the one that Travis and I heard, it was consistently, and we, we, he had his guitar there. When we got back to the cabin, we played the note, and it was a G sharp. And the thing had stayed on that G sharp the whole time. Every, one of, every time it whistled, it was the same note. Another thing we've heard out here that, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I would, I, I just could not believe was a real, was a real thing. And that's, that's um, this sound that we've heard and we've recorded. Some people refer to it as the samurai chatter. I've never liked that. I, I refer to it as faux speech. Um, it's a sound that sounds uh, almost almost like it's like a gibberish of some sort. Um, and by the way, orangutans have been documented producing a faux speech as well. And it sounds strikingly similar to what we've heard out here. Yeah, the one time I heard it, it was really close. And I had a episode in the cabin where I was sleeping. I had a window to my back. And uh, a couple nights before, something had walked up just as we turned all the lights out. You know, it was a quiet day. Nothing was going on. Didn't think there were any apes around. And then lights out, and then something walks up and starts banging on some wood. And then I can hear its footfalls walk away. So I was ready for it. You know, I was like, well, if this happens again, there's a little door in that cabin. And I thought, well, I'm going to be in my gear and I can jump out and bust it. Yeah. So I waited a couple hours and everybody was asleep and nothing happened. So I got tired. I said, all right. So turned the light back on, got undressed, you know, down in my shorts and turned the lights off. And I was sitting there and I just had my iPhone on. And it was literally two to three minutes later, I heard something start walking up to the window. Boom, boom, boom. And then starts talking. Yeah. Like, you know, just weird gibberish <laughs> yeah. for about six seconds. Um, How close and, was it? Oh, man, he was 20 feet. Wow. It was loud. And everybody's asleep, and I hear it, and that's the first time I ever had the hair stand up in my, yeah. you know, in the back of your neck and my body. I <laughs> yeah, got chills yeah. everywhere. I mean, I've seen these several times. I've had encounters. I've had tons of rocks thrown at me. But this freaked me out. And then it just, and then I hear it walk off yeah. in a different direction. And I knew there's nothing I can do. Now I'm in my shorts and there's no way I can chase it. It's the middle of the night. It was like 2.30, 2.45 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it was freaky. And it was almost as if he just came up to say, yep, can't catch me. Yeah. And ran off. Pruitt, you ever heard that? I've only heard the speech like sounds one time. Mm -hmm. And it was in 2007 in Northeast Georgia in, uh, the Chattahoochee National Forest in Raven County. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was kind of an extended experience that also included, you know, various other sounds and, you know, things breaking and being thrown and whoops. Uh, but it was all kind of precipitated with being yelled at by this unseen thing that 
we heard essentially what to me sounded like three vowel sounds that was like Iowa. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and that kind of kicked off this long extended event. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've I've heard recorded examples of it. I, I'm fascinated by it. You know, I, I definitely agree with you that it, it does not constitute a language. I don't think that they you know, it seems like the the most likely or the most simple interpretation would be that they are somehow either emoting again some vocalization maybe connected to the limbic system or that they are maybe to some degree imitating human speech just yeah. like and that's you know, what the orangutans are, have done when that they've been documented doing this well, i mean we, when we go out you know mimicking i mean we colloquially not just us here but you know people you go out and you you hear a barred owl do its call and we were so you know we yeah. we make those sounds right. back because it's interesting and yeah. so who's to say that something that might have a somewhat similar architecture structure you know morphology that has you know some cognitive ability would hear a sound and then mimic it as well yeah. you know there are birds that mimic sounds sure yeah. you know so why not an ape so matt we're going to wrap up this roundtable discussion but tell me what do you think arnold schwarzenegger would say if he were out here with us and he he were to see a wood ape what would he say come on come play with me come on let's get serious let's talk let me see and then there he was i saw him on the hill he was huge billy <laughs> was billy with him when he had the sighting yeah billy was there <laughs> billy chased him <laughs> but it was too late so I called for reinforcements and they come, they flew over the valley and I said, get to the chopper. <laughs> One of the benefits of being in the NAWAC is that you get access to some very talented people and people who are qualified to make determinations about certain things as they pertain to observing and documenting wildlife. And we're very fortunate to have two of the most talented and qualified people with us today in this conversation. And so first we have NAWAC Chairman Alton Higgins. And so Alton, if you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your professional background. Sure, good to talk to you, Matt. My background is in wildlife biology in Arizona. And I was still, I think I was still an undergrad when I got my first, first job, my major professor Dr. Robert Omart uh, recommended me for a, a summer job with the Forest Service, and that was um, censusing birds in the last remaining virgin mixed coniferous forest in Arizona, the Thomas Creek watershed. And another student, Kathleen Franzreb, she was she was also involved with uh, this um, kind of before and after because the adjacent watershed had been clear cut. And so the Forest Service wanted to know if a mixed coniferous virgin mature forest, uh, how it compared with a clear-cut watershed. <laughs> so needless to say, there was some some significant differences, but it was it was like throwing me into the deep end of the pool before I'd ever taken a swimming lesson. And I was overwhelmed with the uh, with the whole experience. The watershed itself was just fantastic. It was. Like I said, mixed coniferous forest that so was dominated by Douglas fir, alpine fir, uh, white pine, ponderosa pine, spruce. Um, it was just just an amazing, amazing place. But like I said, it's kind of overwhelmed. But by the end of the summer, I mean, I basically worked seven days a week 
all summer long. And by the end of the summer, I pretty much had a lot of a lot of it under um, under control as far as knowing the calls and the songs and stuff of the birds. They asked me if I wanted to come back the next summer, and I said, yeah, sure. But I was later offered the opportunity to um, accept another job that was funded by the Bureau of Reclamation censusing marsh birds along the lower Colorado River, which, if you know anything about um, the geography of Arizona, we're talking like one of the hottest places on Earth. So I went from the coldest area in the state to the hottest area in the state, but um, I decided to take the marsh bird censusing job the next summer. Then after that, in 76, 77, I was working full-time through the Center for Environmental Studies censusing riparian habitat along the lower Colorado River. And so that's, I was with some really world-class people. A lot of them have gone on to uh, being, you know, quite prestigious in their own right. And so I felt very fortunate to have that job and, it involved lots and lots of hiking. I mean, I've literally hiked thousands of miles and spent hundreds and hundreds of nights in the field. After that job, I was working for the Forest Service uh, through the Center for Environmental Studies, censusing all the uh, riparian habitat that was on the Tonto National Forest. And that was quite an interesting job as well because we were I was head of a small group of biologists, and we were literally hiking by ourselves oftentimes, uh, watersheds, creeks that had no trails. We were just bushwhacking it, sometimes two-day hikes, but usually uh, day-long hikes. I can remember one one time, I, this is my only semi-wood AP-related uh, uh, experience that I had. I was, I don't remember the name of the, uh, of the creek, but it was on the... Um, Four peaks in the Mazazal mountain range. There's a very prominent uh, mountain called Four Peaks. And a bear biologist drove me up to where this drainage started. And then he said, there it is. And so I was going to hike this thing. It was very, very steep. And I was basically rock hopping. And uh, one of the rocks came out from under my foot. And I took a very bad fall. got pretty messed up. But I didn't see any bones sticking out. So I figured... Hmm. Do I keep going or do I try to hike back uphill and try to find this bear biologist? But I decided to keep going. And as I got lower in elevation, it got into the desert. And very steep banks, it was just sand with very steep, high banks on either side. And something was following me. And I could never see it, but I could hear it, hear it up there. It followed me for quite a distance. So I don't know what it was, but, you know, in later years, I thought, hmm, I wonder if that was, you know, maybe uh, a primate of some sort. <laughs> but like I said, at the time, I, I hadn't thought about the subject for, for a long time. But anyway, those are some of my, my experiences. We were censusing, censusing birds and all these different uh, habitat types. And that's, um, that's what I did. Oh, by some crazy fluke today, I've, I found out that a little paper that I that I wrote with with uh, Kathleen Franzreb was recently cited, and what it was while I was working at uh, Thomas Creek, there was a lot of uh, quaking aspen there too, and I was supposed to also locate bird nest, and so 
there was a, what we called yellow-bellied sapsuckers at the time. They're now called, I guess, uh, red nape sapsuckers. The young are very noisy. They go to the entrance of their, you know, their cavity nesters, the woodpecker, the sapsuckers like a woodpecker, and they excavate their nest cavities, oftentimes in in aspen trees. So I've been monitoring, you know, this one particular nest and the young, you know, they stick their heads out and they squawk and make loud noises. One day I was checking on them and here I see these claw marks going up either side of this quaking aspen tree and the the hole had been torn open and the babies were gone. So we wrote that up as possible black bear predation on sapsuckers. And evidently that discovery that I made was like one of the first, if not the first account of black bear predation on sapsuckers. And someone just this like weeks ago published an article where they, where they referenced the article that uh, we published. And I think it was in the AUK, which is a, ornithology journal. So I just thought that was kind of cool. So that's my background, censusing in a lot of different habitat types in uh, in Arizona for quite a few years. And like I said, hiking thousands of miles, spending hundreds and hundreds of nights in the field. Hey, Alton, this is Brandon here. And I have a question about censusing in general. Can you go into a little bit of detail about what a bird census entails and what you have to do in order to get a decent population count? Yeah, sure. Uh, of course, this was back in the 70s. You guys were still eggs at that point. But uh, we used a censusing technique called the Emlyn technique. What we did was we um, hacked out of the, the forest or wherever we were at um, mile-long trails. We would do um, vegetation analyses of course, as, as as well as the censusing, but we'd go into these areas. We had probably I don't know scores and scores of these of these transects, and the, with the um, Thomas Creek watershed, it was the same thing. They traversed uh, this whole watershed with with uh, with transects, and you you walk along the transect, and whenever you uh, see or hear a bird, and most of it was hearing, you get to where probably 90-some percent of your bird identification is by sound, by ear. And anyway, you walk these these transects, and when you hear a bird, you you, you note it's, it's what species it was and how far you estimate it was from you. And the Inland Technique took all those kinds of data and um, translated it into uh, to densities per 100 acres or hectares or whatever you wanted to, uh, to use. I don't know if that makes sense, but you're walking these lines, and two or three of them we had to walk, so we didn't mess around with it. So you're walking um, this mile-long transect and noting which direction and the distance in the species. And then, again, all those data are, are crunched by, you know, we sent the data into into Arizona State where we had people that, you know, would code the information and, and had the uh, the software, I guess you could say, to uh, to pump out bird densities. And it would vary from one year to the next and from season to season. So you have to do it year round and then year after year as well. If you had to make a rough estimate, how many birds have you heard versus how many you've seen percentage wise during a, a an official census like that? Well, like I said, probably 90% of your identifications are made by ear. So you have to know their songs, you have to know their calls. It's a lot of fun, but it involves... Um, a lot of repetition, a lot of uh, time spent in the field to learn all that stuff. 
Yeah, that really illustrates the importance of sounds and vocalizations oh, yeah. and field biology. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the sort of thing that that you have to learn in the field. You know, you know, I took ornithology when I was an undergrad, and I was the ornithology TA when I was a graduate student. But um, you know, you don't learn that stuff in in the classroom. You know, you have to spend time in the field, and hopefully spend a lot of time with with other people that can teach you what they know to you know kind of speed the process. You'll hear a sound, you go, man, what is that? And they'll go, oh, that's a warbling vireo. You go, okay, okay, cool. So in addition to Alton Higgins, we also have another ornithologist with a very impressive background who not only has earned his credentials in that particular discipline, but also has some wood ape history that maybe not a lot of our listeners are aware of, although they certainly should be uh, with the Richard Greenwell expedition. So could you tell us a bit about your background, Dr. Caparella? Sure, um, be happy to. Yeah, so basically, um, I'm a native Tar Heel, North Carolinian, and growing up there, um, was fascinated by zoology, even I think as far back as the age of five. My parents said that when they took me to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, that I just loved it. And uh, when I came back, started my own little museum in the uh, back of our house <laughs> with a uh, zoological and other kinds of artifacts and even some live animals. My initial interest was primarily in reptiles and amphibians, and um, I even did some roadkill and other collecting for the North Carolina State Museum as a volunteer to help improve our understanding of the distribution of herps as reptiles and amphibians are called together within North Carolina. I ended up going to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and while there, I got interested in birds. I uh, got very involved in birds and kind of shifted my focus uh, away from herps and more towards birds, uh, still having an interest also in, um, in specimen collecting of herps, even during that period of time as well. And in fact, I remember a friend and I, we did a couple of early birding trips to uh, Florida and uh, South Texas, and we got very little sleep because we would bird all day and herp all night. So we were uh, very much uh, into both both types of uh, groups of organisms. From there, I went on to Texas Tech University to get my master's in museum science because I was thinking about a uh, career within museums as a curator or whatnot. After that, um, so a few jobs in between, ended up at uh, pursuing my doctorate at the Louisiana State University Museum of Natural Science. And that was just fantastic because they were and are the premier institution, in my view, doing field work in the neotropics, the New World Tropics, and long tradition of doing that there, that continues. And while I was there, I was fortunate to be able to go on numerous expeditions, both for my doctoral research, which was along the Amazon in Peru, as well as to some other places in Amazonia and the Andes. And what we were doing is we were collecting birds, uh, in many cases going to the first places ever visited by uh, any scientist at all. This would involve really difficult work trying to get into wilderness areas and collecting specimens, uh, making scientific study skins in the field to bring back to museums for further work. Others would be recording birds uh, and basically recording all sorts of data so that we could 
continue filling in a lot of the gaps of bird distribution and species knowledge in Amazonia and other parts of the neotropics. This uh, enabled me to be present uh, during the discovery of several new species of birds, including one that had a book written about it called A Parrot Without a Name, where we discovered in eastern Peru a new species of parrot. It was a pretty dramatic new species. It turned out to be only the second member of a genus, Nanopsidica, that was prior to that only known by one species up in Venezuela. So it was uh, significant on many levels. And uh, it was during this time that I got to learn a lot of field methods of working in wilderness areas, uh, rugged areas, and uh, just really fell in love with it. I then went on and did a postdoc at the American Museum of Natural History for a year in the bird department there. And then after that, got a job at Illinois State University, where I basically functioned as a vertebrate zoologist. I've published papers not just on birds, but also on bats and on herps. And I just completed 31 years there, retired this summer, uh, although I'm keeping an affiliation as their volunteer curator of collections there. So I've had a lot of uh, field experience, both in um, the uh, South America as well as North America. For South America, I actually, I would say for about 20 years, from about 1981 to about 2000, I was fortunate to be able to go on an expedition for looking for new birds or documenting the bird diversity in different countries um, almost every summer for that 20 years. Um, and <clears throat> this was with different institutions, such as uh, the American Museum of Natural History, the Academy of Natural Sciences. And it was very exciting, got to visit not only with other places, other countries like Bolivia, uh, but also that are in the tropical zone, but also down in the, uh, down in the uh, southern portion, the temperate, south temperate zone of South America, in the uh, uh, Tierra del Fuego, managed to go on an expedition there, uh, did some work in Guyana uh, on the northeastern part of South America. So had a lot of exciting, exciting experiences uh, throughout the continent, which is often called the bird continent, since about, a, what, a third of all bird species are found in South America. But I've also developed a program locally here in Illinois, central Illinois, and I've done uh, a lot of field work in uh, Illinois in terms of uh, a lot of volunteer work with bird breeding bird censuses and other kinds of studies, which, as Alton mentioned, requires knowing vocalizations because, as he so aptly stated, about 90% of your bird work is done by sound. And uh, I've had graduate students who've done different projects and, and the like um, on birds primarily, so uh, as well as bats, actually. And um, as I say, completed my uh, 31 years there uh, as of this summer. And so that's my current status is retired, but keeping an affiliation with the university, in part because I wanted to continue doing projects, including projects related to the wood ape research, using a lot of the uh, acoustical equipment that we have or, uh, or the sound analytical equipment programs and the like that we have available at the university. In terms of my cryptozoology history, I, uh, at the same time I was interested in regular zoology, I, in my teenage years, developed a, a, a deep interest in cryptozoology after reading Bernard Hubelman's On the Track of Unknown Animals and Ivan Sanderson's book on the abominable snowman, and then uh, John Green's uh, seminal series on the Bigfoot Sasquatch controversy. And so I maintained that uh, off and on uh, throughout uh, my career. I was very fortunate in um, 
the 1980s to meet Richard Greenwell, who had established the, the International Society of Cryptozoology. And the ISC's uh, attempt was to try to bring a better scientific standing, the, the study of cryptozoology. Unfortunately, a lot of cryptozoology was getting merged with what is often called occult zoology, which is more paranormal, supernatural kinds of things, as opposed to the search for hidden animals that have zoological probability, such as the wood ape. And um, he wanted to really upgrade the status of the science of cryptozoology, which was sort of a, a step cousin or whatever to uh, regular zoology. And eventually he invited me to join the board uh, of directors as well as be a reviewer of papers. And so I was uh, active in that during the 90s uh, until the, his untimely passing in early 2000s when, when uh, the society unfortunately folded. But that was very good because I got to know Richard Greenwell very well, and one of his passions was the Sasquatch in the Pacific Northwest. And he initiated in the late 90s, early 2000s, a program uh, up in Northern California where he and his son, Darwin Greenwell, uh, particularly led uh, numerous expeditions to try to different places, first uh, Bluff Creek, but then later establishing themselves at the um, Siskiyou Wilderness Area, the Six Rivers National Forest, trying to see if they could get evidence of Sasquatch through cameras uh, and uh, recording equipment. And I was fortunate to be able to go on three of those trips. Uh, the last one in 2005, which was also the year of his untimely passing shortly thereafter, where we had numerous really fascinating incidents, which uh, were very uh, compelling to me. Uh, I can't say that I was, could honestly say that I was 100% convinced at that point of the reality of Sasquatch, just because unfortunately I was not one of the ones who actually had several sightings uh, and the like, but there was other occurrences that led me to believe that we were actually, by doing playbacks, bringing in something that would certainly match the, uh, the uh, habits that are reported of the Sasquatch. So anyway, after uh, Richard's untimely passing in 2005, I sort of uh, realized I just didn't have an affiliation with any other group. There were a lot of groups out there, but I wasn't always sure whether to trust them or not. And then I heard about uh, Beachfoot, which uh, Todd Nice and his wife, Diane, have organized for years, which brings together by invitation only a lot of notable uh, experts in the field of uh, studying the Sasquatch, and uh, uh, wrangled an invitation <laughs> to come. And when I was there, I got to meet uh, Bob and Kathy Strain of the NAWAC and saw their presentation and was intrigued because their research site in southeastern Oklahoma is a lot more easier for me to get to from Illinois than it would be to get back to the Pacific Northwest. And they also uh, clued me in to a major report that NAWAC had published on the internet, which uh, actually I had, think I had stumbled across it just before going to Beachfoot, which was an account to date of the incredible uh, experiences and documentation and research protocol that NAWAC was doing. And I loved the fact that they had two basic goals. One is to collect a specimen, which as a very museum-oriented person who have collected specimens of new species of birds, realize that that's the only way we'll ever get this to be accepted by science. And secondly, 
that they really want to get data that will conserve this species, the conservancy part of the last part of the name. So their values really align with mine. And uh, I, after uh, talking to Bob and Kathy, arranged a phone call with Alton, and we were kind of clearly feeling each other out, I could tell, <laughs> understandably, because we do, we both had uh, been burned, if you will, in terms of uh, some people who don't really have that proper scientific attitude. But the more I heard about NAWAC and talked to Alton, who reassured me, we had some mutual friends, realized his extensive background in field biology, learned about the incredible array of talent that had been attracted to NAWAC, and then went to my first annual meeting, and I was sold. This is the group that I believe is really going to crack this mystery completely wide open and has already contributed an incredible array of data uh, based on the uh, sustained effort that they've made at the same, roughly the same place year after year. Unlike some TV shows that have people spending a few days here or there and the moment they get some evidence, they move on to the next place. NAWAC is following the kinds of uh, protocol that we used to follow in Peru at LSU, which you, you find a place and you work it for like six weeks straight. That's the only way you can eventually find any potential new species there. They have to get used to you and you have to get used to what's going on faunistically. So uh, in my affiliation with NAWAC, I've been privileged to uh, go on two of the uh, trips uh, or be involved in two weeks in the field down there. Uh, realized that the Wachita's really are an incredible area that have a lot of analogs to the Siski Wilderness sites that I've worked with Richard, Richard in. And what was most interesting to me is that in both cases, I was there when uh, vocalizations were recorded or at least heard. First case recorded in terms of an interesting whistle, which we'll hear later, and then later um, heard uh, through a playback of the famous Ohio Howl. And I must say, as an ornithologist who's very attuned to the soundscape and natural sounds, both of those incidents is what we pushed me 100% over into accepting the reality of the wood ape as part of the broader Sasquatch issue. I know I can't prove it scientifically yet, but it tells me it's there and therefore worthy of continuing scientific study. I think for anyone who's been involved in this pursuit, like myself, who's a layperson, who's at best an amateur enthusiast or a citizen scientist or, or trying my hardest to be a responsible citizen scientist, there's constantly been, not only during my tenure with this subject, but clearly from familiarity with the literature, it's been a frustration since the dawn of public interest in the subject that there has continually been a lack of scientific commentary. And it's created a bit of a void, and that void gets filled with enthusiasts like myself, and some of which espouse some pretty wild theories that unfortunately seem to drive the scientists even further and further away. So I, I can't express my gratitude enough that both of you gentlemen with qualified backgrounds have risen to the challenge of stepping in, uh, engaging this data, confronting the subject, and providing that much needed commentary. You know, we're all trying our best to learn how to be good field researchers. So there's nothing that's more attractive about this organization to me than the fact that there are legitimately qualified and credentialed actual field researchers here. So that's greatly appreciated. I would say that the citizen science uh, activities 
that members of the organization are doing are just outstanding. Um, as an ornithologist, I'm, we're very used to, uh, as professionals, working with quote-unquote amateurs, although we use the term amateur in a great way in terms of people who have incredible field expertise with bird identification and the like, who are really the core of doing a lot of the kinds of field work that there are just not enough paid ornithologists to do. I'm talking about things like Christmas bird counts, spring bird counts, uh, breeding bird surveys. So ornithologists have high respect for the capabilities of citizen scientists who may not have a degree in our field, but are self-taught and learn from others and bring their own expertise in different ways to make uh, these kinds of endeavors a success. I would also love to ask with the discovery of the new bird species that you were involved with, to what degree did sound play a part in that? Were those discoveries precipitated by hearing novel bird calls? Actually, uh, in one case, yes. Uh, in one case, we had been doing extensive recording of birds, uh, not just uh, our group, but others from LSU. And one of our one of the uh, experts there, the late Ted Parker, who had an incredible ear, was listening to some tapes and said, okay, that particular bird calling there, that is a new species. The next time you're down there, you need to collect every small flycatcher you can find. <laughs> and on my expedition uh, that uh, subsequent summer to the river islands of Peru, we that's what we did. We collected every flycatcher we could find, all under permits, of course. And we happened to collect the uh, very one that um, – Ted Parker said was going to be a new species. The other ones, however, were actually visually uh, identified as something different. In one case, uh, it was a uh, an ant bird that was misnetted, and we immediately realized that this doesn't match anything in the books uh, in terms uh, in all of its characters. It had some similarities, some mem members of a particular genus. Uh, in another case, it was uh, uh, an almost a cryptozoological case in the sense that an expert uh, who had been doing field work in eastern Peru, Charlie Mon, had reported seeing a small parrotlet that he didn't think matched anything known, and that if LSU was able to get into the Contamana Hills of eastern Peru, we should definitely look for this thing. And we did and found it, and uh, it actually, <laughs> a flock landed right next to our camp, uh, and we immediately knew that this was the bird, and we collected a series for um, the uh, ability to figure out what it was. And it was a good thing we did because Charlie thought it was a member of one more common genus. And it was only when we actually had the specimen and could really do a deep dive into its morphology and other attributes that we were able to show that it was actually a member of this other genus, Nanopsidica, only known prior to that from Venezuela. And then in some ways, the even more dramatic to me uh, find was this species of barbet that we found at the top of a mountain, isolated mountain, where the Andes meets the Amazon, that uh, was totally new to science, really surprising. And it was first detected visually, but also recorded. And uh, it was uh, an incredible find. It was also probably the hardest expedition I've ever been on. We went in on canoes and then by foot and then had to do base camps and hill camps, and it was just crazy. But uh, this was an incredible find, and to sort of dovetail into the importance of specimens for conservation, the fact that we were able to document it with specimens and show that it was a totally dramatically new species 
meant that instead of this area of Peru becoming a forest concession, it became a national park. So we definitely want to talk about the current status of our audio-oriented project, but I'd love to hear from Alton. Prior to uh, Dr. Caparella's involvement and the institution of autonomous recording units, how much time and energy and emphasis had been placed in Area X on trying to obtain novel sounds from these apes in the years, uh, the early years of the Washita project? It wasn't along the same lines as what we've had going in the last couple of years where we had these uh, recorders that just go week after week after week, 24-7, four of them located you know, in separate areas of the valley to where we can get a, a pretty good sense, especially at night. We're um, primarily active, of course, uh, during the daytime. Our documentation, sound documentation efforts at night were quite limited because we primarily you know, have to sleep at night. So we've we've made quite a significant uh, ramp up in our approach to our recording sounds and, and getting a, a much better sense of what's going on uh, during the night. And Dr. Caparella, you were the genesis of that approach, correct? Once you had joined the group and, and uh, your familiarity with this type of technology being used in your discipline? Yes, uh, for a long time now, uh, ornithologists as a whole, as Alton mentioned earlier, have been extremely focused on bird sounds. Uh, they're very important in not only doing field censuses, but also in doing assessments of species boundaries and the like. And they often can actually lead sometimes to discovering new species uh, in terms of people doing uh, recordings uh, in the tropics, such as happened with the little flycatcher I mentioned earlier. And also uh, other zoological topics, such as frog vocalizations, which is something I've also worked on. And then people in the insect world, particularly who study orthopterans, have long been interested in, the, in vocalizations. More recently, we've seen with the advent of uh, new technology, uh, recording bats is really big now. It's a great way to document bat presence and other aspects of bat habitat use, as well as uh, now being used in primate studies, particularly in the tropics, where they are finding all sorts of biological topics can be explored through recording primates. I got first interested when I was on these trips with Richard Greenwell. We had pretty primitive recording equipment that basically required one to turn it on <laughs> in order to, uh, whenever you heard something, because battery life and everything else was was difficult. And we were actually back in these wilderness areas of the Siskiyous for like three or four weeks at a time. So, you know, things just wouldn't last very long in terms of batteries and, and other problems with the weather and the like. Uh, so we actually missed some potential vocalizations uh, being recorded. And I, I'm very attuned to vocalizations because I think that they've been underutilized in this study because, again, there's a lot of biology you can extract through having vocalization recordings that are coupled with detailed notes about uh, what else was going on at the time. I mean, to contextualize what's going on, you can get a lot of insight into behavior of organisms and the like. And so, uh, fortunately, the development of these autonomous recording units, I've been reading about how those were being used more and more in uh, ornithological and actually other field studies as well, such as whales. <laughs> People have certainly been recording whales for a while as too. But the uh, when I first really became primed was in the search for the ivory-billed woodpecker uh, when the 
Ivyville woodpecker was reported as being seen back in, uh, I think it was around 2004 in, the, uh, uh, in Arkansas. One of the first things that happened was Cornell University, which was pioneering the technology of these ARUs, deployed quite a few of those units. I saw a documentary on how they did that. And again, uh, they did that because the likelihood of you being present when an ivory-bill woodpecker was both either there or vocalizing and also therefore having the presence of mind to record them was pretty low. Uh, plus, the uh, area they were searching was pretty rugged uh, swamp country that was very hard to survey uh, aggressively, even with lots of volunteers all the time. And what I realized was, my God, this thing would be just perfect in a cryptozoological context. And some people would argue ivory bills are sort of a cryptozoological context since there's still debate over whether that rediscovery was, um, was accurate or not. But nevertheless, I realized the likelihood of ARUs being an incredible adjunct to all the other work that was being done. And we just needed a place to deploy them. And thankfully, because of all the work that in AWAC had been doing down in southeastern Oklahoma, they had pretty much mapped out and had a record uh, of the uh, diversity of vocalizations that had been heard. And as Alton mentioned, had been successful, surprisingly so, considering that this isn't easy to do, uh, since you never know when you'll have a vocal event, of getting some really intriguing vocalizations. And what I realized was that uh, in uh, incorporating ARU technology into the uh, broader arena of the approaches that NAWAC was using could be a really uh, big uh, help in terms of providing uh, another window of opportunity for us to collect data, vocal data, that could then be correlated with all sorts of other parameters, uh, as well as provide us with uh, homegrown, if you will, vocal material that could be used in doing playbacks to try to entice responses as well as uh, visitations by these, these creatures. Playback experiments have been used for a long time in birds to gauge whether the same species or not and to also attract in birds and the like. Uh, more recent years, they've been starting to even, they've even done that with uh, primates. And uh, I think um, playback in, could, can be a fantastic uh, uh, adjunct to try to attract more visitations and in, into camp to enhance the likelihood of getting a specimen as well as to just enhance the likelihood of encounters so we can gather more data as well as being just recordings that can be analyzed for a whole host of other factors. We have seen that be used episodically. I remember there was a paper back in 1980 that analyzed a Bigfoot recording from the Sierras of California and the experts who analyzed that concluded that based on the sound parameters that the entity making it was something much, much bigger than a human. And in terms of the vocal tract and anatomy, there's a mine of information that you can extract ultimately from vocalizations to address a whole host of issues, including saying that this is not anything known to science, period. So we have these autonomous recording units recording 24 hours a day, seven days a week for weeks at a time. Dr. Caparella, can you explain how you're able to parse through these files and find some of the more unique vocalizations that have been recorded? Well, fortunately, there's been a long tradition of incredibly thorough and detailed note-taking, I mean, down to the minute, 
by the participants each week uh, in camp at uh, the area that is being worked by NAWAC. And that detailed note taking is very important to have along with the recordings because um, often the human ear may pick up something that's gonna be really faint on the recording. And if we can know the timestamp that uh, the uh, human ear picked it up, we can then actually find it on the recordings by both playing and visualizing them using acoustical analytical software such as Kaleidoscope and Raven, which are the two major ones used by uh, 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 biologists who do acoustical work. You can get spectrograms, uh, make spectrograms that then give you properties of the sound. You can both through visual inspection as well as listening, sometimes find sounds that perhaps everybody was asleep when it occurred. And uh, we've certainly seen that happen. And it's actually a, a very interesting way to uh, have a, a sound window as well as the sight window that they have uh, at this place to get this kind of data. And it's all being correlated through the extensive note-taking with other occurrences as well. Occurrences that might indicate whether there was a stimulus, maybe uh, a vocalization occurred after somebody walked through an area or did this, that, or the other thing. Maybe it occurred during certain times, uh, uh, during certain moon phases or other kinds of uh, weather events. Uh, maybe it occurred in response to certain types of playbacks. Uh, again, a wealth of information. And the nice thing is, is it's, it's evidence that is there for the analysis of other people. It's not just an anecdotal, hey, I heard something that sounded like this. You've got the sound right there. You can hear it. You can analyze it. You can have other people analyze it. You can then compare it to sound libraries that are now quite extensive at Cornell and other places to then demonstrate that this is not anything that is known to science. Now that we've discussed the importance of capturing audio evidence in the documentation of a novel species, I'd like to transition into the presentation of some of the more unique sounds and vocalizations that we've captured. Everything we're about to present was recorded deep within the Wachita Mountain Range in southeast Oklahoma using autonomous recording units that were running 24 hours a day. We're going to play every file twice to give you, the listener, a proper chance to listen without having to hit the rewind button. After we play each file, we'll transition into the discussion of and reactions to those sounds from our panel. We snuck a preview of these first vocalizations into the end of the last episode of Apes Among Us. Here, we have an entire series of an animal producing high-pitched whoops. These were recorded in Area X over a week and a half time span in the late summer of 2017. We had two ARUs running at the time, one of which was situated roughly 350 yards away from our campsite on the slope of a rocky mountain. These were captured on that particular unit. The times of these recordings vary. Some were captured at noon, others in the early evening. Let's go ahead and hear that now.
remind me, I have to say, they remind me of uh, of uh, monkeys, gibbons or something like that. Yeah, I think that they are actually remarkably similar to the calls that gibbons make. And there's a video on YouTube recorded at the Indianapolis Zoo that's called Gibbons, the Whooping Monkeys. And they make a couple of whooping calls in that video that I think are incredibly similar to the ones that we recorded. Angela, have you ever heard any birds make anything like that? Certainly not in North America. I know uh, it has a little bit of a sound like a kagu in New Caledonia, or at least part of that vocalization. And I'm sure there's probably some other birds I don't know that that are not North American that might make something a little bit similar. But I'll bet if you really looked at the spectrogram, you'd see it's coming from a vocal apparatus that would be different from a bird. As with all of these vocalizations, they're so clearly not Wachita uh, bird fauna any way, shape, or form. The odds, the chances of of this being some kind of a of a hoax perpetrated uh, over the course of years and years and years is um, is just not tenable at all. That, and I don't think that any human is actually capable of replicating those sounds that we just heard. They have a wild animal quality to them that I don't think any human can actually make. And that's what that 1980s study that was published some years ago, you may have seen the book Man Like Monsters on Trial, University of British Columbia Press, had a really interesting analysis in there talking about how with these recordings, you can make inferences about the vocal anatomy that's producing it, and the particular sounds that they uh, they analyzed, they concluded had to have been something much, much bigger than a human, like seven or eight feet tall, to have that kind of vocal apparatus that could make that kind of pitch and nature of sound. So uh, again, uh, people who are really more informed than I am on how to analyze uh, at that deep level these sounds can, can take these and actually make a case that This could not be uh, imitated by a human of many of these sounds. This next file was captured in August of 2018. We had a team in Area X that documented repeated visits in close quarters by a whooping animal. One night, the team was sitting out in front of the cabin and heard a loud, high-pitched whoop from an estimated 30 yards away. The animal was concealed on the mountainside behind our cabin. One of the members of the team decided to respond back in kind with her own whoop. Incredibly, the animal answered back, this time seemingly modifying its pitch to closer replicate the team members. They exchanged whoops two more times, then the whooping animal didn't respond. After that exchange, the team knew that they had to be adequately prepared to record the animal should that kind of event happen again. Amazingly, two nights later, the whooping animal returned. This time, the team had one of our Tascam field recorders running and managed to capture the whoop. There was only one this time, and no exchange was involved, but we still managed to capture the sound. That sound in particular is not only reminiscent of sounds that I've heard in the field, but it's very reminiscent of other whoop recordings from other parts of the country, and is very reminiscent of the sounds that witnesses describe having heard. I think one of the more interesting things about this particular recording is that the team actually exchanged mm-hmm. whoops with the animal. And my question for all of you is, have you ever experienced that in the field yourself? That would be a yes. As far as exchanging sounds, yes, I have. I was going to say I have not um, had a response to an invitation, but I have to playback. 
I would assume that it would be notable to either or both of you that these sounds had been recorded in the field. And yet during both of your extended field time over many years, these are not sounds that you would normally hear in a North American environment, correct? Not in my experience, that's for sure. Definitely not. And that's after going through sound libraries from these areas to see, well, I don't know all the mammals, you know, like I wasn't quite sure what a gray fox sounded like or whatever. I didn't think it fit or not, but I made sure to go and do due diligence. I knew it wasn't birds because I know the birds very well. Mammals, you just never know because sometimes they do make some weird stuff, but typically nothing close, nothing close to uh, to what uh, has been recorded. So I was confident that I'd ruled out all of the known mammals as well. Here we have a couple different series of whistles that we've managed to record. We'll start with the set that I had mentioned in a previous episode. Alton Higgins, Dr. Angelo Caparella, and I were all present at the time of this recording. This was in August of 2016. We were sitting in camp having a discussion, and seemingly out of nowhere we heard these whistles. Luckily, Angelo had an audio recorder running at the time. After hearing the whistles, I walked over to where they emanated from and didn't see anything unusual. After poking around the area for a bit, I heard clear, bipedal footfalls walking away from me. There was nobody around me at the time. Nothing else was heard after those footfalls. I heard a whistle. Is that you? No. That definitely caught our attention. I will say that. It was like looking at each other going, do you know what that is? Uh, Do you know what that is? I don't know what that is. I remember you taking off and we didn't follow behind you. We stayed in camp. So it definitely wasn't us that that you heard retreating from you. I was extremely impressed by the whistle first because I knew that was no bird. (laughs) The closest analog I could think of was the maybe tinamous down in the uh, neotropics, but certainly not with that cadence or anything, just in terms of quality. The other thing that really impressed me and why I think the whistles are an important vocalization to be documenting is all known great apes uh, do not whistle, except for humans. (laughs) Humans are the only great ape that can whistle, either can or will whistle except for one lone orangutan in a zoo that learned to mimic the whistle of a keeper. Uh, So whistling is a very interesting vocalization. It requires some aspects of vocal anatomy that is thought to not really be present in any other great ape other than humans. And it is, I think, uh, one of the more fascinating, although perhaps to the uh, uninitiated, uh, less distinctive sound to really pick up on because that's just, that just really was fascinating to me for those two reasons. Not any bird that I knew 
at all in that area, and known great apes other than humans do not whistle. The next set of whistles was recorded two years later, miles away from the first set of recordings. We had a team in Area X at the time. It was around 8 o'clock in the morning, and our team was just getting out of bed and eating breakfast. Since it was early, the birds were still calling and singing. Suddenly, the team heard a whistle that was much louder and clearer than any vocalizations the birds were making. The animal produced two more whistles. Finally, one of our team members decided to respond with a whistle of his own. Just like the whooping animal in the last set of recordings, this animal responded to our team member. They exchanged two sets of whistles, both of which we have recorded. confidently could you rule out native birds in those scenarios i can't think of any native birds that would make that kind of a of a whistle or i can't think of anything again you might find across the world some i mean there are whistling birds elsewhere that might make something remotely similar but nothing i actually did send that uh, the dauntless uh, whistle to some of my avian friends without explaining the circumstances and said does this match anything you know here in North America? I just told them it was found in, the, in Oklahoma. And they said, nope, they've never heard anything like that. Didn't know what it was. This next file was recorded in August of 2017, a couple hundred yards away from our camp. I was there at the time, and I'm glad I didn't hear it. Frankly, it still gives me chills to this day. I will let the file speak for itself. We've sent this file to cougar and bear biologists, both of which responded and said it was unlike any cougar or bear that they've ever heard. The closest comparable sound we have is that of a gorilla roar. 
We have a sample of a gorilla producing a roar, and I'd like to play them back to back for comparison. The closest I've come to hearing something like that was in the big thicket in Texas. Daryl Collier and I were sharing a tent because my tent, something had broken on it. So we were sharing a tent. We heard this just horrendous roaring, growling, really like something from a monster movie. <laughs> and um, it was close. And that's that's the closest I can think of. That I've not heard a sound like that in the valley where we're at now in the Washita's in Oklahoma. But we did hear something that reminded me of that in the big thicket. Is there anything indigenous to either of those regions that you think is even capable of making that sound? I think Angela and I can agree it's not a bird. Definitely <laughs> <laughs> not a bird. I don't think it's a bear or a mountain lion or a coyote or anything like that. I, I would be uh, hard-pressed to accept that as an explanation unless somebody had such recordings, known recordings of those animals. You found a sample, Elton, of a gorilla producing a roar-like sound, and it sounded remarkably similar to the sound that we just heard. Pretty impressive and pretty remarkably similar. This is the last file we have to share, and I consider it to be the best piece of evidence we've ever recorded. This was recorded at 9 o'clock at night in September of 2017. We captured it in the same area where the whoops we heard at the beginning of this segment were captured. We call this the Wachita Howl. Yeah, that's that's like I don't know, sixteen seconds or so. That's that's extremely long. I've only heard one that was longer than that, and that actually was this summer. It must have gone on for it seemed like thirty seconds. It's just incredible. Maybe longer, but that's by far the howls are by far the the most common mystery vocalizations, I guess you could say, that 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 I've encountered there in the mountains. In fact, just this summer, on June thirtieth, I was with the uh, Phil Burroughs, who's our corporate accountant, and he and I heard four howls in um, the space of uh, an hour. The first one was extremely close to us. It sounded like it was just right almost above the cabin, the camp where we were on the side of the mountain. And then um, we heard another howl. I don't know if it was the same animal or not, but this about 45 minutes later or so, we heard another long, it was much longer than the first one coming from the north, and then um, 18 minutes after that, we heard two long, the longest howls, but they were from uh, the farthest uh, distance. All these howls were like on the same pitch. They didn't vary. They didn't jump around. They didn't modulate like what you think of with coyotes. And I've heard these long, long howls more than uh, any of these other vocalization types. I've heard the howl, um, not that long, but a series of howls in response to when I broadcast a recording of the famous Ohio howl, immediately got back uh, four or five responses in sequence. They were shorter, but they were very impressive, and they seemed to be coming from some distance away. And then later that night, I was 
pretty sure something did come into camp, heard other activity, no sound, no vocalizations, but that was a very impressive hearing that response to the Ohio, Ohio Howe broadcast, um, a vocal response of, of what sounded to me almost like the same kind of howl. So that was very impressive. I think this piece of audio that we have here not only lends credence to the existence of the wood ape, but also its range. This howl sounds incredibly similar to the howl that Matt Moneymaker was able to capture in Ohio. And this one was in Oklahoma, hundreds of miles apart from each other. I've heard moaning howls like this in multiple places around the country, and I have recorded examples of it from Mississippi, from Western North Carolina, from the Olympic Peninsula of Washington. There's other examples that exist from West Virginia. Because it's the loudest sound they generate, it's the easiest one to hear. And because it's the loudest sound they generate, it's also the easiest one to document. So it seems to be kind of the most ubiquitous sound that people associate with it because you don't have to be very close to one of those things to hear them make that sound the way you'd have to be close to hear subtle whistles or uh, percussive sounds or some of the softer, quieter vocalization sounds. So it does seem to be one of the most characteristic sounds uniquely identifying these animals and that is reported across their distribution across the continent. Yeah, I think that this episode in this particular collection of vocalizations that we are presenting just gives you a small sample size of the incredible vocal capabilities of these animals, producing everything from a small, subtle whistle to a 15 to 30 second long howl that takes really, really, really powerful lung capacity. So we've got something really special on our hands. You know, this small handful of sounds that we're discussing here are just some of the gems that we've been able to mine thus far from the initial stages of deploying these autonomous recording units. But we have a full year's worth of data from last year that still hasn't been completely gone through. And then with this year's particular operation, we activated the recorders in June, and they're out there running now as of this recording in early August. And those will record throughout the duration of their battery life, which should be several months and then we'll have that data to go through. So there's absolutely a high potential to find more novel sounds or more supportive sounds that are akin to the ones that we've already identified. And there are also um, reports of sounds that we have yet to record. I still think of the sound that uh, you, Brandon, and Brian heard that you described as sort of angels singing or something to that effect, that I don't think we have any recordings of that. Am I correct? That is correct. And that was one of the most bizarre experiences that I've ever had in my life. There are probably other vocalizations being issued by these wood apes that people have heard that we've yet to document in terms of recording. So that's why it's just really important to keep doing this. I would again say that I think it's it, we're all very grateful that you brought this technology to bear, Dr. Caparella, because I think it's it's being utilized in a unique way here. And it's such a, a tremendous effort to go through all this data. And I know that you've contributed to that in a large way as well, also employing some students, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. I've had some students who've been intrigued and have helped me um, in part as a way of getting training on using the uh, acoustic software, but to really keep them engaged, telling them what we're looking for. Uh, certainly kept them very focused on going through a lot of recordings that I just didn't have time to listen to. And and I think they had a lot of fun and fascination with that. Well, I think we're all definitely benefiting from the use of this technology 
and are very grateful for you bringing that to bear. And it's just a, a further extension of the work that this group is doing and trying to collect tangible, legitimate data. So we greatly appreciate that. Well, it's been just great working with the group. And like I say, I really do think that uh, this is the group that's going to really crack the mystery in terms of getting a specimen. And, and we do, that is, of course, the central focus and should remain such. Angelo, Elton, Matt, thank you very much for joining us today. No problem. My pleasure. Oh, yeah. Great to talk to you guys again. Thank you so much for having me. And it's great to talk to both of you as well. Hoping to see you soon. is all that we have for you for now, but I do want to remind folks that our autonomous recording units are continuously running in Area X, and we hope to record more vocalizations and more sounds in the very near future, and if we do, we will definitely share them with you. Matt, I want to thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. I really hope that listeners enjoy this episode and enjoy the sound files and the opinions weighed in about them and can apply some of these techniques to their own research as well. Yeah, I'm really, really interested to see what kind of feedback we get on this episode because I think that some of the sounds that we've presented are some of the best evidence of the wood ape ever put out there. So with that, we are going to close this out. Again, I would like to remind you that if you have any content you would like to submit, if you would want to become a member of the NAWAC, please visit us at woodape.org, or you can find us on Facebook at North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Our next episode, episode five, is entitled Shades of Gray. We have had multiple visuals of a very large gray wood ape who folks say looks basically like the older sibling of Patty. So please stay tuned for that.
microphone yetis were harmed during the recording of this podcast.